Though the 19th century German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche did not call himself a Satanist, and likely wouldn't have, Satanism being then associated with the Romantic, which he detested, his role as a virulent critic of religion and culture, as well as his intelligence and radical individualism, have made him an icon of Satanic thought. His work appears on the official Church of Satan reading list, and it's clear that the church's founder, Anton Xander LaVey, was heavily inspired by Nietzsche's thought. To such a degree as Satanism concerns freedom, Nietzsche's ideas are highly relevant as he advocated throughout his works for what he saw as the path towards becoming a truly free spirit. Hail and welcome to A Satanist Reads the Bible, exploring the Bible, Christianity, and other religions and sacred texts through the lens of Satanism in order to reinvent religion for myself. Today is going to be a shorter episode, and I apologize for that. It's good material on one of my favorite topics, the philosophy of Friedrich Nietzsche, but life has been a bit more challenging of late, as I know it is for many of you, and so I haven't been able to finish my new content. I'll add a bit of discussion to this one. I'm expecting to have something a bit more substantive for you next week. If you enjoy this one and want some more good Nietzsche content, I've got another episode on the philosopher called Nietzsche and the Dionysian, and there are some great episodes of the excellent Philosophize This podcast that cover his work. If you enjoy the show, please like, follow, and share, and consider signing up on my Patreon to make a material contribution that will help me to research, write, and record these episodes. Apparently, it's about my year anniversary of being on Patreon, and so now is a good time for me to express my deepest appreciation for my patrons. Uh, I couldn't do this without you. Thank you so much. On to it then. This is Satanic Meditations on Nietzsche. To call Nietzsche a genius would be somewhat understating the point. The University of Basel in Switzerland granted him a professorship in classical philology when he was only 24, before he had ever been awarded a doctorate, which the University of Leipzig provided on an honorary basis soon after. The clarity of this thought relative to his peers is nothing less than astounding. To truly appreciate Nietzsche's brilliance, read whatever you can find of late 19th century literature and philosophy, and especially his predecessors like Kant and Hegel, and then read anything that Nietzsche ever published, with the exception of his first work, The Birth of Tragedy, though Nietzsche's own criticism of that work is itself a brilliant piece that makes its failings almost worth it. Nietzsche has been denounced as a proto-fascist, and indeed he was known to have been admired by Adolf Hitler, but his writings were relentlessly critical of Germans, German culture, and nationalist sentiments in general, and at the same time surprisingly, especially for the period, defensive of the Jews. He was, however, an unrepentant misogynist, and even his most, most faithful translator, Walter Kaufman, whose translations I will be using primarily, seems to be shaking his head in the notes whenever Nietzsche talks at all about women. I don't understand that part of him. It seems an entirely non-trivial stupidity, in contrast to an otherwise nearly universal brilliance and insight. To be clear about the disparity here, his best writing is on par with the greatest philosophical writing in human history, whereas his writing about women, at its best, rises to the level of the comments section of a YouTube video. 
He makes mistakes elsewhere in his work, but none of them so consistently and so deeply as the mistakes he makes about women. I have even heard Nietzsche called a nihilist, one who rejects all belief and meaning, but this is far from the truth. Nietzsche was adamantly opposed to the nihilism he saw as associated with religious doctrine, but also the nihilism he saw resulting from the fading influence of religion as his world became increasingly secular. He had little positive to say about religion, but the nihilism that would come from its unreplaced departure seemed the greater specter to him. As a response, he advocated for the most passionate affirmation of life. I think that part of the role of the Satanist is to be, in the spirit of Nietzsche, a kind of anti-nihilist, a powerful and passionate affirmation of life in the face of largely religious opposition to this life in this world. For my part, I intend not only to tolerate religion but to embrace it, but in that there is a necessary opposition to the doctrinal institutions of religion who deny this life and this reality in favor of some other life and some other reality. My favorite work of Nietzsche, and the one I recommend to anyone reading his work for the first time, is The Gay Science. He described it as his most personal work, and it seems almost to act as a hub to which his myriad other works act as spokes. It contains clear statements, some of the most clear in all of philosophical writing, of all of his most famous ideas and also neatly refutes what is most commonly thought about him. A near invalid at times due to relentless health problems, he was nevertheless overjoyed at life. In the preface to the second edition of the work, he wrote, This whole book is nothing but a bit of merrymaking after long privation and powerlessness, the rejoicing of strength that is returning, of a reawakened faith in a tomorrow and the day after tomorrow, of a sudden sense and anticipation of a future, of impending adventures, of seas that are open again, of goals that are permitted again, believed again. The gay science is a vastly important philosophical work. Here he treats it almost trivially. He almost comes to apologizing for how exuberant he is, having survived for a while longer. His confidence in this is found in the first section of the book proper, where he draws on Darwin, whose revolutionary book On the Origin of Species was published a couple decades earlier. He says that everyone, even those he finds contemptible, are acting, however unknowingly, for the benefit of the whole of the human species, any other such behaviors having been necessarily weeded out by natural selection. And what are we to take from this Darwinian chorus? Quoting here, Life is worth living, every one of them shouts. There is something to life. There is something behind life, beneath it. Beware. The gay science is written in short sections of usually just a few pages each, sometimes no longer than a single sentence or even just a phrase. Each one is laden with depth and meaning. Let's consider as an example and as the focus of this piece, section 108, titled New Struggles. After Buddha was dead, his shadow was still shown for centuries in a cave, a tremendous, gruesome shadow. God is dead, but given the way of men, There may still be caves for thousands of years in which his shadow will be shown, and we, we still have to vanquish his shadow, too. 
The statement God is dead is one of Nietzsche's most famous, and this is the first time in his writing that it appears. Absent context, it can easily be misinterpreted. What Nietzsche meant by this is something similar to what one would mean if they were to say, disco is dead. Though Nietzsche's pronouncement is considerably more consequential, it's not a matter of whether or not God is or was real, or whether belief in God is valid or important or meaningful or necessary. What Nietzsche intended was that, whatever the consequences, the act of belief in God is intellectually dead. The weight of such a statement might not be clear now, almost a century and a half later. For Nietzsche's, for Nietzsche's philosophical forebears, belief in God was simply a given, and God's existence was something that would have to be reconciled with each new philosophical theory. But God and belief in God were becoming less and less relevant to Nietzsche's increasingly secular world, and Nietzsche intended to wrestle directly with the consequences of that. The idea of shadows in a cave was likely drawn from Plato's allegory of the cave. Plato's allegory features a cave in which several people are chained facing a wall, unable to move or turn away. There is a fire burning behind them, and people pass objects in front of the fire, which then cast shadows on the wall, which the prisoners believe to be true reality. When one of them escapes, they see that what they thought was reality was actually only shadows of the true reality. Likewise in Nietzsche, the shadow of God is something that we must vanquish in order to uncover the truth. It's interesting that Nietzsche chose 108 as the section in which to make this pronouncement, in the context of a reference to the Buddha. Being a disciple of Schopenhauer, Nietzsche likely knew more about Buddhism than most Westerners did at the time. I think that it cannot possibly be coincidence that he chose one of the most sacred numbers in Buddhism, and in Eastern religions in general, for this purpose. Linji Yishuan, known as Rinzai Gigen in Japan, the founder of the Rinzai school of Zen Buddhism and a famous iconoclast, was known to say, If you meet the Buddha on the road, kill him. I don't know whether Nietzsche was familiar with this saying, but it seems very relevant to what he is saying here. Linji's message is that what Buddha represents for the Buddhist is greater than just an idol, greater even than a great teacher, greater even than the historical Buddha himself. Whomever you meet on the road who call themselves the Buddha, they are such a pale shadow of what that symbol of the Buddha signifies that they should be killed on the spot at least in the metaphorical sense of denouncing the person as not being higher than the teaching. Nietzsche seems to be saying something similar and something that is intrinsically satanic. Cast down idols and seek the truth behind them. In Pauline Christianity, as opposed to the apocalyptic Judaism that Jesus taught, the teachings and the path of Jesus are subsumed by Jesus the idol. Paul the Apostle did not advocate for and likely was not even familiar with the teachings of the historical Jesus, but his vision of Christianity, in which the spiritual being of Jesus must, must be petitioned for salvation regardless of whether the teachings are understood, is the one that ultimately became orthodoxy. Ask any modern Christian whether it is better for one to know the teachings of Jesus or, or for one to be saved by faith in Jesus, and they will choose the latter every time. This is idolatry. This is the shadow of God being shown on the walls of our caves. 
In section 343, Nietzsche explains the further consequences of the death of belief in God. At first, these predictions are rather grim. Quoting here, much less may one suppose that many people know as yet what this event really means, and how much must collapse now that this faith has been undermined because it was built upon this faith, propped up by it, grown into it. For example, the whole of our European morality. This long plenitude and sequence of breakdown, destruction, ruin, and cataclysm that is now impending, who could guess enough of it today to be compelled to play the teacher and advance proclaimer of this monstrous logic of terror, the prophet of a gloom, and an eclipse of the sun who, whose like has probably never yet occurred on earth? But Nietzsche tells us that these are just the initial consequences, and that the long-term prospects for those who are freed from the yoke of idolatry are much more optimistic. Nietzsche is often thought to be a grim and pessimistic philosopher, but this is yet another failure to properly interpret his writing. Nietzsche explicitly rejected the pessimism of his once mentor Schopenhauer, and here we see him full of hope even in the face of impending catastrophe. Quoting here, we philosophers and free spirits feel when we hear the news that the old god is dead, as if a new dawn shone on us. Our heart overflows with gratitude, amazement, premonitions, expectation. At long last the horizon appears free to us again, even if it should not be bright. At long last our ships may venture out again, venture out to face any danger. All the daring of the lover of knowledge is permitted again. The sea, our sea, lies open again. Perhaps there has never yet been such an open sea. I have never put down one of Nietzsche's books not feeling inspired, sometimes troubled as well, but there's always joy to be found in wrestling with these tensions and with Nietzsche's often challenging but nevertheless exuberant vision for a life well lived. One thing I want to discuss a bit is the problem of misinterpretation and misappropriation of Nietzsche's philosophy. This is something that happened during and shortly after Nietzsche's own life at the end of the 19th century, and which continues into the present. In stark contrast to many of the German thinkers of his time, Nietzsche was highly favorable towards the Jewish people. According to Walter Kaufman's 1950 biography, Nietzsche had a great admiration for the Old Testament of the Bible, in contrast to his repudiation of the New Testament, and language praising the Jewish people can be found throughout his works. Some of these pronouncements also include some language that remains problematic in a contemporary context, but one cannot read Nietzsche faithfully and come to the conclusion that he was an anti-Semite. Indeed, one of the great heroes of Nietzsche's early life was the German nationalist and famously anti-Semitic composer Richard Wagner, with whom Nietzsche ended up breaking due, in part, to those views. Nietzsche's reputation as a predecessor to the nationalist, National Socialists was largely the result of the influence of Nietzsche's sister, Elisabeth Furster Nietzsche, who curated and edited her brother's scripts after he became hopelessly insane in 1889. She was herself a German nationalist, another ideology which Nietzsche repudiated, as well as an anti-Semite, and edited her brother's works in a way that was favorable to her own ideology. 
I've often seen Nietzsche championed by the political right, but it's important to remember that Nietzsche cannot be seen as being purely right or left. Nietzsche was enormously complex as a person and as a philosopher, and any attempts to reduce him to single-word descriptors should be met with incredulity. Kaufman's biography of Nietzsche quotes the philosopher Karl Jaspers as saying that one should never be satisfied in reading Nietzsche until one has found the contradiction. This is not to say that Nietzsche frequently contradicted himself in a routine, casual way, but rather that his thought was sufficiently complex as to resist easy interpretation. One should keep in mind that, while Nietzsche has indeed been an influence on right-wing thinkers such as Ayn Rand, he has also been a major influence on philosophers such as Michel Foucault and Gilles Deleuze, both of whom were very strongly left. Alright, that's it for the show today. Next week, I believe I'll have something new for you on the political philosophy of John Locke and its relevance to Satanism. A Satanist Reads the Bible is written, produced, edited, and scored by me, Todd Billsborough, with the support of my partner, my patrons, and my audience. Thank you all for joining me today. Always salt enough.